And open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 2. For using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 980, 981. Our sermon passage today is going to be Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Let's go ahead and look at that now. Let's turn our attention again to the reading of God's holy, living, and inerrant word. To help us to rightly understand our passage that we'll be focusing our time upon this morning, um, I'll go ahead and read uh, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 1 and then skipping to verse 1 of chapter 2 and following. Hear now the word of the Lord. Verse 27 of chapter 1. Paul tells the Philippians, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verse 1 of chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that it is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The verses that we'll especially focus upon for this morning. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is God's word for you today. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your enduring word, and Lord, we also thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would now pour your Spirit upon us in fullness so that we might rightly understand and apply this portion of your word in our lives. And we ask this for the sake of Jesus. Amen. You 
are children of God. You once were filthy, but now you have been made clean. 1 Corinthians 6.11, you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You once were guilty, and the things that you had done were reason for great shame. But your sin, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sin and your guilt and your shame has been taken off of you and has been nailed to the cross. Put upon Jesus and His perfect righteousness has been given to you. You have been delivered. You have been rescued. You once were orphans, but you have been made to now become beloved sons and daughters, sons and daughters of the King, sons and daughters of God Himself. First Peter 2.10, you once were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Or would you rather that these things not be true? Do these things, these new realities, capture your heart and your affections? Or not so much? Would you rather go back? Would you rather go back to being dead in your sins? Would you rather go back to being an orphan? Would you rather go back to being a slave? Would you rather go back to being without hope in the world? Would you rather go back to being enslaved by, the, by a cruel taskmaster? Paul employs language in our passage this morning that's intended to bring to remembrance the Exodus generation. That generation of Israelites who had been delivered out of slavery in Egypt by the mighty hand of the Lord. They had been slaves there in Egypt for at least 200 years, perhaps almost 400 years. And they were forced into hard, difficult labor that would kill them. Forced to make a daily quota of bricks without straw even. And to do this, they were starving to death. They, were, they, they weren't taking in enough calories to feed them hardly for the work that was required of them each and every day. They were near the point of starvation. And they cried out to the Lord. And the Lord heard them. And he delivered them. That's the kind of God who we have. He is the God who hears us. He is the God who rescues us. He is the God who delivers us. Who frees us. 
The Lord does these mighty, powerful works before Pharaoh and in the sight of the Jews, and He delivers them. He tells Moses to stretch out His hands and the Red Sea separates and the Israelites pass through on dry ground. They're hungry, and so the Lord provides quail and manna. A bread that tastes better than the finest pastry that you have ever had melt in your mouth. And quail, the finest of all fare as well. All this the Lord did for those people. And how did they respond? Did they respond with unending gratitude and appreciation to this God? Or did they grumble? Did they become discontented with this life, this new life, this life of freedom even, that the Lord gave. That's what they did. They rebelled against the Lord and did not find joy in the salvation that He had given them. And on the east side of the Red Sea, even you might remember Scripture saying that they, they said, oh, if only we had died at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And, and they mistakenly remembered their lives there in Egypt as being so wonderful, telling, them, telling themselves, there we sat by meat pots that were full, and we ate bread to the full. Life was so wonderful back then. And they grumbled against Moses. They grumbled at Moses for bringing them out into this wilderness To kill this whole assembly with hunger was the accusation that they made against Moses. And it simply wasn't true. The way that they remembered their life, their previous life, and the way that they assessed their current life, it was a lie. It was not true. They didn't eat until they were full in Egypt. They were starving there, starving in their enslavement. Life was not wonderful. Life was miserable there. That's why they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And rather than to give thanks to the Lord for for His mighty deliverance of them, they grumbled. They complained. And they disputed They disputed with the Lord. They disputed with Moses. They disputed with one another. And here in his letter to the Philippians, Paul wants us to understand that we, that Christians, are not to be like them. Not to be like that Exodus generation. That's what Paul actually even says specifically in 1 Corinthians 10. And speaking of the Israelites of the Exodus generation, Paul says, with most of them, God was not pleased. Paul says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents. Nor should we grumble, there's that word from today's passage, nor should we grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, 
these things happened to them. They happened to that generation. They were written down, Paul says, for our instruction. These things took place, he says, as examples for us that we might not desire and do evil as they have done. The writer of Hebrews says this of that Exodus generations in in Hebrews chapter 3. He says, therefore, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your hearts as as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test, even though they saw my works for 40 years. I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray with your heart. Friends, we need to take care because our hearts too can go astray. They always go astray with their heart. They have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. You might remember that God had promised them a land, a new life, a promised land and a promised rest. But you remember that those of that generation that left Egypt, only Joshua and Caleb were allowed to enter into that land, enter into that rest. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, for, the, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. They were unable to enter because of their unbelief. In Deuteronomy 32.5, Moses referred to those Israelites who were delivered by God out of Egypt, but who were then dissatisfied by their new lives of freedom. Moses refers to them in Deuteronomy 32.5 as no longer being God's children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Those people of the Exodus generation are examples to us that we are not to emulate. A little bit later in chapter 2, Paul's going to commend to his readers, Christian leaders, who they are to emulate. Men like Timothy and Epaphroditus and even Paul himself. But he tells the Philippians, and the the Lord through Paul is telling us, don't be like that Exodus generation. Don't be like that Exodus generation who grumbled and murmured and complained and and who argued continually with Moses and even with the Lord himself. Over and over again, those folks said, Oh, if we could only go back to the good old days. If we could only go back to Egypt. They refused to embrace and to appreciate the freedom and the new life that the Lord had given them. And they declared that they preferred the life of a slave. 
or a life of an orphan to that of a free, redeemed, beloved child of God. They wanted to go back and to live their old identity rather than to embrace and live out the new identity that the Lord had given them. Rather to embrace the new life that was offered to them, instead they murmured, they argued, they whined, they grumbled, they disputed. They caused dissension among the covenant community. And you know, it might be that something similar is going on in Philippi. It might be that that's why Paul feels compelled by the, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write these words that he has that, that we have before us. That might be why Paul feels compelled to have to tell them to not grumble or argue or complain. That might be why Paul encourages the Philippians in, in 127 and 2.2 to be of the same mind, being of one accord in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Maybe he had to say that because they weren't living that way. They weren't living in unity, but rather in disunity. That might be why Paul presents his call to humility in considering others as being more important than oneself and of looking out not only for your own interest, but also the interest of others. Paul's even compelled in chapter 4 of calling two women out by name, imploring them to get along better and to agree in the Lord. There is disunity, evidently, disagreement, even disputing going on in this church in Philippi. And so Paul gives this command to them and to us too: do all things without grumbling. The ESV Pew Bible that you have in front of you also includes the words questioning. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Now that that doesn't mean that a person can't ask reasonable questions, but the the Greek word that Paul utilizes here carries a connotation of obstinate uh, resistance or of bickering, of calling everything into question. The more recent edition of the ESV phrases this as grumbling and disputing. That's also how the New American Standard translates this phrase. The NIV and the New King James and the Holman Bible treat this phrase similarly, similarly saying, do all things without grumbling and are arguing. Paul says in the church to Christians, don't grumble. Don't argue. Don't be dissatisfied. But what should we be instead? Well, look at verse 18. You should be glad. And you should rejoice. You should remember what God in Jesus has done for you. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the form of of human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, 
even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember that. Have that be reason for living a different kind of life than what you once lived and what we might be tempted to live even still again. Because the right response of faith to who Jesus is and to what he's done for his people is that we would bow our knee in submission to him and that we would confess with our tongues that he is Lord. But Paul also wants us to respond to who Jesus is and to what he's done for us in our lives by giving glory to God by the way in which we live our lives. Not just by our words on a Sunday morning. And we do that. We honor God with our lives as we seek to have the same mind as we seek to have the same heart attitude of humility towards the Lord and towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than to grumble about them or to argue with them, Paul says. This all ties into the words from verse 12 that we looked at last week about how we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, remembering that it's God who's at work in us. And one of the important ways, Paul says here in verse 14, that the Christian works out his salvation is by not arguing or disputing or murmuring and so on with those of the household of faith. What are we to do then instead? Well, we're to live out of our new identities. We're not to make the same mistakes that the Exodus generation made. We're to not to forget our identity. We're to not forget our identity as sons and daughters. But that's what we do so often. We live as orphans. We forget what is true about us now as those who have been redeemed from the Lord and rescued, delivered from slavery. It's the Lord's desire for us to live out of these new realities as dearly loved and redeemed sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of the family of God. We're not to live as orphans, not to live as slaves. But look at verse 15. We're to live how? As children of God. We're to live as those who embrace and who seek to live out and affirm that which is good and right and godly. We're to live out lives of godliness empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so as a fruit of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control are produced in our lives so that we might live lives that are to the glory of God so that we can even be said to be blameless and innocent in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. 
Now, how else are we to live? Well, we're to live as lights that shine in the world. That's what Paul calls us to live in verse 15. Where did he get that? Well, that's also, of course, how Jesus called us to live as well. In John 8.12, Jesus declared that He was the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in Matthew 5.14, in the Sermon on the Mount, He also declared that you are also the light of the world. He went on to say, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give praise to your Father who is in heaven. Now, how is it that followers of Jesus can be said to be the light of the world? Well, that's because of how closely we are identified with Jesus. Jesus declared that He's the light of the world. And those who trust in Him by faith have been brought into union with Him so that now what's true of Him is also true of us. And because Jesus is the light of the world and we are now found in Him, we then share in His light. We reflect His light. And when Jesus says that that those who follow Him are the light of the world, we should understand that that's both a statement of reality, a a descriptor of one's identity, and it's also an indicator of one's purpose. And that purpose, the purpose that we are the light of the world, is so that as people observe our lives, as people say the way in which we live in a way that seeks to honor the Lord, as they see our good deeds, as Jesus says in Matthew 5.16, it's the Lord's desire that they would see Christ in us and that they would be led to Him that they would come to know Him and that they would, they would go to His cross and that they would be led also to His majesty and that they would give praise to our Father in heaven as they too then willingly bow their knee before Jesus and declare Him to be Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that, that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But two verses later, Paul says that the Lord has let light shine out of darkness and has shown that light into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9 that, that we have been saved so that we would proclaim the excellencies of He who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Rather than to grumble about our lives, rather than to grumble about our brothers and sisters in Christ, indicating hard, ungrateful hearts 
The Lord's desire for us is to proclaim His excellencies. Rather than to, than to tear down our brothers and sisters in Christ by our murmuring and our questioning and our disputing and our arguing, rather than doing that, the Lord desires for us to love one another and to seek to build one another up as we're told to do in Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only that which is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Brothers and sisters in Christ, remember who you are. Remember what you are. Remember whose you are. Don't live like slaves. Don't live like captives. Don't live like orphans. Don't live like ungrateful children. But live like the beloved children that you are. Live lives characterized by gratefulness and gratitude and love. Gratefulness and gratitude to the God and King who's delivered you from bondage. The one who's delivered you from bondage to sin and from bondage to the allures of this world and even from bondage to your own desires. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray that the Lord would cause that to be our reality. Lord God, may that, may that be true for us. Lord, may we live as lights for the sake of the gospel. May we live as lights for the sake of Christ. May we live as lights for our own sake and for the sake of others. So that others would come to recognize you as being the Savior of sinners to the glory of God the Father. Forgive us, Lord, for all those times when rather than reflecting your brilliant light, rather than that, we show forth dark hearts ourselves. Forgive us of all those times that we fail to live as you call us to live. Forgive us for our many sins against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our sins against you our sins against the church, our sins against the gospel, our sins against our lost neighbors. I'm reminded again of John 17 where Jesus prays that we would be one even as the Father and the Son are one so that the world will know that the Father has sent the Son and that the Father loves the world even as He loves Jesus. That's your intention, Jesus, by causing us to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Lord, continue to remove anything that blinds us in our lives so that we might see you more clearly, more fully, 
and that others might see you in and through our lives. We ask you to be pleased to accomplish this, Lord, for your name's sake. Amen.